Welcome to the Mothers on the Frontline podcast and our special series, Between Friends. Hello, this is Tammy. And this is Dion. And this is Angela. We are the founders of Mothers on the Frontline. Children's mental health is a social justice issue, both in how children with mental illness and their families are treated and in how structural violence adversely affects the mental well-being of children. The motherhood of children with mental health conditions has been marginalized and stigmatized in ways that are deeply connected with structural and systemic racism, misogyny, patriarchy, and colonialism. This context silences the lived experiences of mothers, and it degrades our essential knowledge about our children and their needs. This silencing both harms our well-being as mothers, and it prevents our ability to adequately advocate for our children. In this new series, Conversations Between Friends, we will discuss and name what often remains invisible, hidden, or unspoken. Within this intentional space of friendship and care, we will pursue our vision of a world in which mental health is destigmatized, respected, and prioritized as an integral part of the overall health of individuals, families, and communities. Before we begin, please realize that we are three mothers at home with our children with mental health conditions. You might hear children, meltdowns, ticks from Tourette's, and other background noises. This is just the lives we live, so carry on. In the current resistance work that is being done across many movement spaces right now, we are witnessing a demand to abolish current punitive frameworks and systems and to create restorative ones that focus on community safety and well-being. This is at the heart of recent calls to defund the police. It's also at the heart of attempts to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline by removing school resource officers and violent seclusion and restraint policies from the schools. While these movements clearly and rightfully demand changes in specific policies and practices, there's something much deeper going on, both in terms of policy framework and philosophical grounding. So who is in the juvenile justice framework? Who is in the punishment system that we currently have for children? It's 48,000 youth in the United States. 95% of them were put there for nonviolent offenses. 70% of them have a mental illness, and nearly half of the girls and one-third of the boys have experienced five or more adverse childhood experiences. Yeah, I think, uh, Tammy, that, that this is, you know, the, the, the toxic sort of end of, of certain sort of punitive systems, the statistics that you talked about. But there are beginnings, parts of this, right, that, that you know, um, you know, black students, for example, are suspended three times the rate of white students in schools. And this is when we control for, you know, um, geography. This is when we control for class, like uh, uh, poverty. This is th- these statistics come from the Department of Education. And so they're aggregated across um, the country. We know that um, 
children with disabilities fare worst of all in school disciplinary settings. And this is not when we're talking about SROs, right? This is just the school disciplinary modality. And so more than um, one in four boys with a disability and one in five minority girls with a disability receive an out-of-school suspension. Students with disabilities as a whole only make up about 12% of the student population in this country, but they make up 25% of the students who are either arrested or have their disciplinary cases referred to the police by the schools. And the one that, you know, speaks to where we are, all of these speak to where we are, but one that like really stands out for me, particularly because of where we are right now, is that black girls are six times more likely to be suspended as white girls. And black boys are three times as likely to be suspended as black boys. Again, this is the school punitive setting. Underneath all of these um, statistics is a punitive framework that has gone back to the beginning of our country and is really endemic in everything that we do, okay? And philosophically, there are two ideas that are underlying them that go back to the Enlightenment, okay? Um, one is this notion of atomic individuality, and we do see in movement spaces that this idea is really being challenged. We see more and more uh, relational ontologies, and I'm going to apologize because in addition to being a mother, I'm a philosopher, and this is what I see going on, so we will deconstruct it as we go and make sense of it. The, the other piece of it is rational choice theory. This assumption that goes back to Descartes, this Cartesian dualism between will and intellect, that cognition or intellect is different than affect or feeling, and that we make these choices through reason, which is somehow supposed to overpower emotion. And these choices are individual choices, and they're basically what happens is that Social behavior results from individual actors, each make these individual choices freely and cognitively, and they will only do what we want them to do and comply with what we want them to do if we reward or punish them, because the, all of their choices are based on rational calculations of benefits and harms. And I'm here to say that both of these <laughs> views are a mess. They're not good. They don't go with current neuroscience and they just don't understand basic humanity. And that's why we are where we are. So there we go. I'm just going to pop in with a thought here. Whoever came up with that stuff was clearly never a parent. Okay. <laughs> what child do you know who is rational before, I don't know, maybe even like 25, you know, like brain development, like you were saying about neuroscience. As you were saying that, I was sitting here going, oh, my God, this is so stupid. But yet it is really what is was the underpinning of of all of our all of our, uh, like you said, punitive and discipline systems. And uh, I'm going to throw it back over to Dion because I know you've got some stuff to say on this. Well, it, it's, it's funny because, um, you know. And this is why I, I enjoy being friends with a philosopher as a political scientist, because, you know, I always make this joke about political science that we, we take everybody else's theories and, and we're sort of like the original appropriators, right? We're like, okay, now we're going to create the whole theory from that. Um, and so when you're talking, you know, it, 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 the philosophical underpinnings of this are really important to understand. and they play out 
in some very real policies, but also beliefs about people, right? So it's, it's, yes. I think it's important to point out that our entire political structure, the theories that we operate by, um, in the realm of not only politics, but in the realm of policy. And policy is really trying to induce certain behaviors or encourage behaviors, right? Come from this belief that what you were talking about, atomistic, meaning we are all individuals. We are not really nested in any kind of system. We're individuals that bump into other individuals, right? And as individuals who are bumping into, this is atomistic or like little atoms, right? And we're singular atoms bumping into other singular atoms. And where your interests coincide, then you are willing to and you will participate with that other atom. But where your interests don't, you have no reason to, right? And the, (laughs) the fundamental belief is that all individuals are selfishly looking to maximize our, my own utility. So I'm selfishly looking to get the most for me and the most benefit for me. And the purpose of our systems, including discipline, right, is to induce individuals who otherwise would be selfish and not induced to act outside of their own self-interest, to act outside of their own self-interest, to comply, exactly. to be a part of. And this is like... I mean, this is the heart of how we structure almost everything in our political universe. And I'm going to jump in here because what that leads to is this false dichotomy of altruism versus selfishness and why it's a false dichotomy. And this is where being a caregiver, right, being a mother of a child, any child, let alone a child with disabilities, disrupts this, as you say, Angela, because those two things are not separate. Altruism and selfishness are not separate. We are all connected. We are connected in families. We are connected in communities. We are connected in humanity. We are connected in all living in the same ecosystem that we need to preserve this earth so that we can all keep living in it. We are all connected. And so it is my own interest for us to have a common good. You see what I'm saying? Those two things are not in opposition to each other, but they, we think they are because we have this false ontology of being atomic individuals. Well, and and this is where in our conversations that we've talked about, right, is the, the, this individualisticness that we're all separate from one, one another. And that if we just, um, reward behavior and, and punish other behavior, the carrot and the stick, as we talk about, that we're seeing our relationships as transactional, right? That we're not interrelated, that we're not interdependent. And that the atomistic nature of this is we, you know, we view people and instances as these sort of, like Deanne was saying, these, these little bubbles, but we're not, we don't live in a vacuum. Um, Our children, when they have, you know, uh, emotions or reactions or behaviors, these aren't things that are isolated from everything else going around, going on around them. And when we don't um, treat people as whole beings, we, we, we end up doing so much of this harm. Um, and it's why the three of us in our conversations got together have, you know, started to really think about how do we go about um, 
repairing that. I, you know, I don't know that correct. I was thinking correcting, but you know, the, but, but that, that's where we're going. And it's part of um, what we have sort of teased out as, um, you know, children's mental health justice framework. And we can talk about that a little bit more. And I'm going to let Dion finish what uh, she wanted to put in here. Well, it, 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 as you're talking, this is why, and I think we, we just have to make obvious why children with disabilities and children who are of co- children of color, uh, black and brown children get so much of the focus. And I'm going to talk like children with disabilities, the challenge of disability, particularly when we're talking about children with mental health challenges, is that the children are acting outside of what's considered to be the interest of the entire community, right? So, so in the case of a classroom, a child, you know, a lot of, of the um, behavioral models focus on disruptive behaviors, right? And, and right. I know for like my, my son who has ADHD, he has an independent education plan, which is something that, you know, is his right, is designated. Because of the ADHD, you know, he has protections from the Department of Education, and this is what this is called an IEP. But every year we go into IEP meeting, we get down to some of the most absurd metrics, right? So it's like, (laughs) well, you know, we're going to write that our goal is for him to only have three disruptive like and disruptive behaviors. So how are we defining disruptive behaviors? And we all sit there, parent you know, special education, specialist, um, principal, and we all sit down, we decide in the room, without the child, by the way, um, what we're going to agree is a disruptive behavior. Is it getting up from his chair? And so we ask usually the teacher, and the teacher's like, well, what does she find most disruptive in the day? Which is fair because she's with him in the educational setting. And so if the teacher, and it depends on the individual teacher, by the way, so the disruptive behavior is really dependent on whether or not the teacher finds it disruptive to her process. Again, child is not present. I'm supposed to be representing the child. So I have had a teacher one year, not my child's teacher now. It's like, well, when he gets up and he gets up from his chair and he kind of does this little lap around the room, self-regulatory, I find that disruptive. So how many times do we want him to get up from his chair? You know, he has to be allowed to get up from his chair sometimes, but how many times? So let's just say he could get up from his chair and walk around three times in a day. So if he does it four times, it's disruptive. And so now (laughs) we're looking at these behaviors, and this is what I'm saying, the challenge of a child. And to me, the opportunity is what I've decided to say in my life with my child is that they make obvious these, 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 not just institutional, but community, they're operating outside of whatever the rule structure, going back to this atomistic thing that is set up by the community. And it's assumed that they must be doing this for their own self-interest. They're not doing this. And so now we have Mm -hmm. to pull them back in. And the only way that we have to pull them back in is the only way that we have to pull anybody back in. And that's through disciplining the behavior. 
Yeah, and I'm going to add to that, Dion. Not only is the assumption they're doing it in their own self-interest, but that they're doing it independently of what's going on around them. Mm-hmm. So, so let's say your child needs to walk around the room to self-regulate. Maybe they were just triggered by something that was disruptive in the classroom system at that moment. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about how the teachers, you know, clucking, like making a sound while they're talking might trigger someone's sensory issues. We don't talk about the fluorescent lighting. You see what I'm saying? Like it's mm-hmm. So it's always really, what is the person with disabilities doing that bothers the rest of us? Not what is yeah. actually triggering and bothering the person with the disability, which tells you right there how we value people. And mm-hmm. we need to look at that as well. I really want us to, you know, continue to work on this idea of the, as you're talking, the atomistic, that we're all these people who, and especially our children, who are acting on these self-interests and that they are, um, because of whatever happens to be going on with them, and intellectually, physically, mentally, whatever, that that they are the problem, that mm-hmm. they're the bug in the system that needs to be corrected. It's, that it's, is so not the case. And, and, you know, it's, and it's not. And when we talk about, I mean, I also want to be fair about mm-hmm. where we wind up and how we wind up here as parents, right? Because it's not just schools um, who, yes. who really, you know, fall back on what we, what we call punitive models. And punitive models can be anything from, you know, Spanking would be probably one of the more drastic ones that everybody points to, right? They're like, yeah, it's like spanking. But it's also seclusion, right? Um, and restraining. Right. It's also, um, and it could be something as benign, right? Particularly for children who have um, mental health challenges and, and, and cognitive disabilities, right? It could be something as benign as a sticker chart, which is technically in a school system, not considered to be a punitive model, it's considered to be a positive behavioral support, right? And I think it's important to, to, to really start to look at how our punitive models and these types of supports are nested not only in our beliefs about behavior, right? But they're also nested in the belief about how we teach somebody how to be a good human being or teach someone how to 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 act in accordance, right? So somehow the sticker yes. chart by being rewarded, by rewarding my own self-interest, like having a cupcake at the end, right? And sticker charts have been like pushed by with my stepson is when we got rid of our sticker charts. And that's like almost like 10 years ago, we ran into the sticker chart problem before everybody else noticed though. So we were on trend, right? We were whatever it's called, whatever the millennials call it. We were there um, before everybody else. (laughs) Because it's like the sticker chart, which, you know, at the end of it, he gets a cupcake at the end of the week, right? And and we sat down and it was the pediatrician. This is 10 years ago. It's like, well, you know, he's having all these behaviors. He's having meltdowns. Um, He was in grief. Um, You know, he had lost one of his, he lost his mother, but in the way to handle his grief and the disruptive nature of his grief was to come up with somehow a sticker chart that, you know, every time he moved through getting dressed and all like something positively, we give him a sticker and mm. at the end of the week, he would mm-hmm. get a cupcake. Right. Um, and it would always invariably fall apart 
when he had like if he if we decided that he needed to have three stickers in order to get the cupcake and he got two and then he messed up and didn't get the third it always went to just wash right and his behavior Mm -hmm. would revert all the way back and i want to make sure that when I'm talking, I'm talking about my experiences with the sticker charts. I'm my experience with this. Right. I am not, and I don't think we are telling parents how they need to discipline and what they need to do with their child. Because, you know, I am a whatever it takes to get, especially <laughs> right now yeah. in the middle of a pandemic. You know, if you're giving out cupcakes without yeah. stickers, fine. Um, really what's important and what (laughs) it is for us, I think, is that these models become embedded in not only the assumptions that we make about behavior, but the assumptions that we also make about wellness and we make about, you know, our kids' motives. I just want to say something about motives because, as you guys know, this was a big issue for my son in school as well. They would always do all these point systems. And in his case, he had obsessive compulsive disorder. So the point systems themselves were the antecedent event because that's how they think. That's how it's all behaviorist. That's the training they're all receiving in education and the educational sphere. It's all behaviorist, which just shocks me because like if, if you go to the psychology department and university, they're like gone with that. But why it's predominant in our K through 12 system, I don't know. But um, basically what they're doing is they're talking about, well, find the antecedent condition and that cause the behavior and try to get rid of that. But the assumption is never they are that they, the educators and the school system are the antecedent conditions, right? Mm-hmm. And so right. um what what happened would be, you know, my son had OCD, so he would need an even number if you're gonna give him an odd number of points, even ninety-nine out of a hundred, he's gonna have a big problem because it's an odd number and he can't deal with that. Right. right? So it has nothing to do with what they think the motives are. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I think the motives mm-hmm. are you're just trying to get away with something. You're trying to manipulate me to get out of work. You're work avoidant or attention seeking. Those are their two favorites. And mm-hmm. hardly that mm-hmm. was ever hardly ever his motives. His motives were usually I'm trying to avoid uh, an anxiety trigger. Right. Um, yeah. I'm trying to avoid um, those anxiety triggers can often be something being odd, like an odd number or uh, not having some kind of um um, evenness, like you touch one side of my body, like you brush against me, you have to touch the other side, right? These things that have nothing to do with what the teachers think they're about. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and I, again, this, br- this brings me back to transactional nature of relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And how that is so superficial and it doesn't work for a whole lot of people. And and it really shouldn't because it's like, if you do X, I will give you Y. Right. Right. And, 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 exactly. and it's, it, it, I mean, and it's also like sort of built into economics. Um, you know, when my husband was going to get his master's and one conversation we had was about something a teacher, a professor said about you incent what you reward. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, you know, really at at the heart of things. But when you have a child who is experiencing any kind of difficulty, they don't even have to have a diagnosed mental challenge or mental illness or disability. But who wants to have transactional relationships, right? That I have to give you something in order to get something in return. I mean, that's 
And it's pretty horrible. And that's what's in sort of like abusive situations, right? Like, hey, you do this for me, you know, quid pro quo, you know, (laughs) Um, we want our children to grow up to be, you know, holistic individuals who are able to interrelate with other people around them in healthy ways. And you can't do it well if it's the constantly it's the carrot and the stick and that, you know, if you don't get take the carrot, we're going to kind of beat you over the head with the stick. Yeah. Right. That doesn't that doesn't teach the internal locus of control. It doesn't teach kids how to do things like set personal boundaries or how to manage their emotions Mm -hmm. like you know, we all get that. We all get to a point where we're like, oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed by whatever's going on around me. How do you manage that? Because that's really what we want from people is, um, you know, that, that, that healthy balance so that things don't go over the top or become so difficult that they can't manage what's, you know, the, the crisis that's going on around them like COVID, yeah. right? What are we, what are we um, providing to our children outside of these sort of basic metrics? You can do math, you can do science, you can, does that make sense? No, it makes perfect. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, you were saying, <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny that, or it's good that you brought up your husband's experience in, in his economics class, because again, you know, political science, we, we also, well, economics is, is our joke is economics is actually an appropriation of us, which that could tell you how things get watered down. <laughs> and a funny little anecdote about rational choice theory. I was teaching one year and I had, um, I was teaching policy. And then so I said rational choice theory and I had a group of students who were taking the class because they were econ majors and they came up with their econ textbook and they're like, we looked through our econ textbook. Nowhere does it say rational choice theory. It just says rational actor. And I'm like, because that's the basis. Of course. (laughs) And so what it is, is that the basis of economics is they just start. It's not a theory. It's the basis of how all behavior and everything is really understood. And so, and this is important because economics is really how we are, where we get a lot of our theories and we get a lot of our policy programs. So you kind of hit the nail on the head with that. And the punitive model, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 you said something that, that really like made me think about self-regulation. So the things that we're really trying to get at and the things that, you know, again, I'm thinking about my 10 year old. He has one of his hardest things that he struggles with is regulating his emotions, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. he, his emotions can go from what looks like the outside. And I, I think you're right about this, Tammy, how we're observing it from the outside. is not how he necessarily feels on the inside. But from the outside, it can look like, right. you know, we go from he's getting dressed in the morning. He's fine. We're going through breakfast. We're doing everything. Uh, we're on our way out the door. And from what it feels like to me as his mother, I say something small like, oh, you forgot your backpack. Go back upstairs and get your backpack. Mm. And then he's like off to 10. Right. And he's in meltdown mode and he is not regulating. <laughs> right, right. And it, I have been hard pressed as a parent long 
like with our, our, our 20 year old first, like how is the sticker chart? So now I'm supposed to not give him a sticker because he didn't go out. He didn't make it out of the house fine. But how am I teaching him to regulate, to recognize where he's starting to get triggered and and to make self-regulatory yeah. adjustments and to also communicate that to me? Mm-hmm. Like, OK, actually, yeah. I'm upset because and he also has OCD. Um, with sy- sy- a lot of symmetry stuff too. I'm, I was, I kind of was upset because the bowl and everything wasn't placed where I normally place it. And I overlooked that because he did what he was supposed to do, but then something else and stuff. So now he was on his fifth thing and he just had it. Um, nowhere in all of these metrics exactly. are we taught to have what we need to learn as human beings, both as a person who has regulatory issues, but also how to be in relationship with people in that way. So here's part of the problem. And again, I'll try to behave because you know me, I'll go get on a whole lecture about <laughs> logical positivism here. But, but measurement, measurement is not knowledge. Hmm. Okay, yeah. let's just start with that. Okay, I'm not saying there's no value to certain kinds of measurements, but we act as a society like measurement is knowledge, and it certainly is not wisdom. Right. And right. we gain the wisdom we have about our children through being in relationship with them. That's how we gain the wisdom of all of the people we know is by being in relationship together. The way I have learned from, I have learned so much from my son. By basically what we've been saying about allyship and all the other things the last few episodes, by shutting up and listening to him. Yeah. Now, if he's in a moment of crisis, that is not the time he's going to be able to thoughtfully explain to me what triggered him. I have to just be present with him. Let him regain calmness. Let him, there's a kind of a equilibrium in systems, including family systems, right? If I can remain calm and just be present with him. He will find his calmness. It may take a little yeah. while, but it will happen, right? In the same way yeah. as caregivers, that's why we need extra support. Because if we're constantly doing that role, we lose our own calmness, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, we yeah. th- there's equilibrium of the whole system that's going on here. It's not just about individuals. But once he has regained his calmness and I ask him, hey, what happened? I don't project anything onto him. Hey, what happened? I always learn things I never would have suspected. Yeah. Right. And you know what? And it's very often not what you assumed, right? Because we all have assumptions exactly. about what's exactly. going on. And and as I listen to you talk, I start seeing sort of the interconnectedness of what's going on right now, right? In in the world and in, in, in the problems. And it goes again back to this idea that we're all these sort of individual, um I- independent transactional actors, right? And that what we're not seeing behind behavior and expression of emotion, you know, let's say the anger that's going on right now because of the injustices, is that we're not seeing what the needs of the individuals and the communities Mm -hmm. are. What we're seeing is here is a negative, what we consider to be a negative expression of behavior, and that it needs to be controlled and punished. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And exactly. it's that con- it's that control and punishment that is, you know, the, the punitive model that is not working. 
and it's never really worked. It will work to gain immediate compliance, maybe, okay, um, in, in some people, but it doesn't lead to the outcomes that we really want, and it doesn't meet the needs of the child, the individual, the community, the nation. I mean, we are ignoring the, the planet needs of people. I mean, let's look right? at our the planet, planet right now. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Be, be, beyond our, you know, our, our borders, but that is really what's sort of at the heart of what we talk about, right? That we have to peel all of these layers off and we have to get at what is it that our children need, right? Um, and, and, and they need, and we need, and everybody needs, um, an integrative approach to how for treatment and wellness, right? Not just putting people in little bubbles and pretending like nothing affects them. Well, you, um, you hit, and, I'm sorry. You know, and, and go ahead. Go, no, well, go right you ahead. hit something. <laughs> and, and again, it just sparked a thought, right? Because when you're talking about how this really speaks to the moment that we're in and, and communities that are needs and how we look at behavior, it kind of hit, be back to why this becomes such a issue, not just of, of, you know, disability justice, but also racial justice, right? Because how we read the behavior is how mm -hmm. we read, like, whether or not it is deserving of a carrot or a stick in the punitive model. And so, and how we read behavior is sifted right. through this uh, racial lens, right? And, and so, where some, yes. and this is why, you know, black and brown kids and black girls are suspended, you know, at such a high rate. Behaviors that we would look at in other girls, white girls in particular, as being, you know, um, righteously defensive behaviors, like body um, behaviors in which, you know, young girls, especially middle school age, are trying to learn, not learn body autonomy, but assert body autonomy, trying to, to figure out what to do. And the behaviors may be like, don't touch me, right? Don't get near me. And it could be for a lot of reasons yeah. that we don't know. But, you know, a racial right. lens with that will look at one behavior as aggressive, another behavior as defensive mm -hmm. and needing of help, right? And that is largely sifted yes. through a racial lens. And that's not an accident. And I can speak to this. So so my scholarship is in early modern philosophy. I study the Enlightenment period when these ideas formulated. And this will-intellect distinction, right, it comes about with Descartes, and it really becomes reified during the Enlightenment. And it's happening at the same time that we're finding justifications for slavery, colonialism, and imperialism mm -hmm. in general. Okay, so it's not an accident that these go together because what happens is the view is that a good person develops their rationality to overcome their physicality and emotionality. And what the justifications for slavery and for colonialism, as well as patriarchy and misogyny, by the way, and particularly mm -hmm. ableism, I mean, all of that is all wrapped mm -hmm. up together, is that certain people have less control of their body and their feelings than others. We that is exactly how we have justified the, you know, scientific rationalistic Europeans coming in and taking over certain deep, lands, it goes, right? Go, deep, go ahead. It goes deeper than that because that is the rationale um, in the United States for who got to be a citizen 
and who was not a citizen. So citizens in order, right. and it was, it right. was again, now I'm going to get a little geeky as a, um, a, a political scientist who studied American government. We'll, we'll allow it. Um, <laughs> citizens, in order to be a citizen, according to founders, right, in a republic, in a democracy of, our, of ours, because citizens exercise a vote, to exercise a vote, you have to exercise rationality, right? So looking at any groups that were, and this included, by the way, for a long time, Catholics too, because Catholics uh, gave over all of Catholic men or were, were, or papists, as they were called um, in, in early literature, had given over all their autonomy to a pope, right? And so their allegiance and everything was to a pope, and they would do what the pope said, but not, you understand what I'm saying, not exercise their own um, um, utility, right? But more so, That's it right. was women, um, African Americans at that time, uh, it, both enslaved and not, right? So free <laughs> and not free. Um, That's right. And people with disability. This is like people were considered to be permanently incapable of exercising the right type of thought and rationality to be full-fledged citizens. And that is everything from owning property to voting. Um, and so it was structured right. in this way. And it was structured in this way for a very long time. And this is why we have to continuously in movement space particularly in feminist movement spaces and race movement spaces, make a justification for our existence and our full-fledged citizenship, make a justification for our actions. Join us next week as we continue this conversation on punitive systems and the frameworks that underlie them. We will also begin to look at new promising frameworks that are currently emerging. Thank you for listening to Mothers on the Frontline. Copyrighted in 2020. The music is Old English, written and performed by Flame Emoji. For more podcasts related to children's mental health justice, go to mothersonthefrontline.com or subscribe to Mothers on the Frontline on iTunes, Android, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, please make a tax-deductible donation on our website.